Oh, hello. Happy Monday, uh, post-Thanksgiving. I hope you had a great weekend. I myself broke my foot. So my Thanksgiving was awesome up until 6 o'clock last night. But you know what? You shouldn't ride home from the beach on a bike at 6 o'clock at night. You're asking for it. At least that's kind of how I'm trying. You know, I'll be fine. And it's a good thing that this show is seated, is all I'm going to say. I do have a lot to say about people who run, though. Um, first, I'm very jealous. And then I'm also very angry, particularly because there are two guys running tonight who should not be. They should be locked up, but they busted out. And there's a manhunt. Whoops, not a manhunt. Because they're not men. They're kids. These two. Unless you say, Ashley, why are you showing the faces of kids on TV? It's because they're wanted for first-degree murder. So they're armed and dangerous, according to the authorities. And they've been out on the run for 48 hours. And they somehow were able to bust themselves out of the juvie facility that was holding them. Can I repeat? They're, they're charged with first-degree murder. And they were in juvie at 17. So here's what I think. When they catch them, and they're 17, right? We've all, we've all had a run with a 17-year-old here and there. Not always the brightest bulbs. Uh, when they catch them... My thought is that they probably will be elevated to adult court. Oh, yeah, there was an effort to do that before they escaped. Can I say one more thing about these guys? One of them is out for the second time. Yeah, he escaped twice. He somehow got out twice. So that happened, and I'm going to tell you all about these two, what's happening in Louisiana, how this happened, and where's the money that was put aside for all the security upgrades at this facility? And where are all the guards? It's a question I keep asking. So I can't really call it a manhunt, because I can't really consider those two men yet. Mark my words, the court may, though. So the other story that, um, and again, Running at this point for me just makes me angry because <laughs> I'm not going to be running for about six to eight weeks. Uh, then there's this whole business about what you do over Thanksgiving. Like, do you read, relax, reset? Do you, you come out on your Monday all like rejuvenated or do you deal with what Bryn Speecher dealt with all weekend? And that was how she's planning to face a jury and tell them that the bong hits made her murder her boyfriend. Sorry, kill. You know, at first they thought it was murder because he was stabbed 108 times. But then she told them it was the bong hits. There were a couple of bong hits, and they said it's cannabis-induced psychosis. That's what her lawyers said when she stabbed him, stabbed her dog, and then you can see her marks all over there. She stabbed herself, too. Yeah, I don't know if you noticed that. I should probably acknowledge that I got a boo-boo here, too, uh, with that bike crash. Um, when you pedal backwards and the brakes hit, I'm not used to that. So I get all discombobulated, and over I went. And guess what? I'm not 80. So don't make jokes about people who fall off bikes. Thank you. Um, so Bryn Speecher has a big week. In her trial, she has to look at... 12 of her fellow citizens and somehow convince them that she's not responsible for what she did because she took three or four hits off a bong before she went into what she calls again cannabis induced psychosis and then just all hell broke loose 
and she stabbed her boyfriend 108 times and her dog and herself. Now, you think about what it would be like for you to take the stand and try to... It's one thing to convince maybe the police or experts or, you know, but then it's another to convince a jury of your peers. Are they willing to accept this sort of new science that weed can make you that aggressive and angry and murderous? Maybe they, maybe they are. Most people think weed just calms you down. Maybe some will agree with her. But imagine what her weekend was like. So I should tell you, uh, she's out on bond, so she had Thanksgiving. But she may not have another for a while. I'm going to explain all of this in a moment. And then um, I have heard all kinds of motives for murder. And I know that you, if you're watching my show, you're a true crime fan. And you have heard all these motives too. But how about this motive? Curiosity. There is this young, true crime fan. Looks innocent enough, right? That just looks like, like her, I don't know, graduation photo or something. Uh, young, true crime fan. She's a total buff. And she admits that she stabbed an English teacher more than 100 times and then dumped the dismembered body in a river all because she wanted to see what it was like. She is a true crime fan, and this was a fantasy. So we will see what her trial is going to be like. All of that is ahead this hour. Let's start here, though. Jailbreaks happen. Prison escapes happen, too. And sometimes the inmates break out of the buses or the vans that ferry them to and from uh, prisons and jails and courts. We've seen it happen. And most of the time, it's a combination of sheer resolve on the part of the prisoner inmate and uh, some sort of lapse in, in oversight or judgment on the part of the jailers and guards. But in almost every single case, once that escapee is caught and put back in the slammer, the jailers tend to keep a pretty close eye on the guy, right? Because, ugh, fool me once. Um, they definitely don't want the fella to slip out a second time. Like the first degree murder suspect who's on the loose tonight in Louisiana. Actually, I mentioned it before, there are two of them. Two first degree murder suspects on the loose tonight in Louisiana. They broke out of the East Baton Rouge Juvenile Detention Center. That happened on Saturday night. And they are both juveniles. They look like babies. Both of these two faces get a good look. First degree murder suspects, both of them are 17. Exactly how they broke out, not clear yet. You know, they don't share a lot of that stuff with us when they're juvies. But they do promise us they are still investigating. Thank you, because it would be great if others didn't break out. The mayor's office is blaming a malfunctioning door at that jail that one of the teenagers apparently was able to force open with his teenage mind. Um, in any case, my money is on David Atkins as the mastermind behind all of this, because he's the one who also broke out of that same facility not even two weeks ago. If you have a calendar, just check. It was November 14th. That's like yesterday, right? It was at that time that the police say Atkins and another kid made a run for it while the guards were, I guess, putting inmates back in their cells after some kind of fight broke out. That's a good distraction. Both of the kids, though, I mean, grabbed less than a day. They were barely out, barely on the run. And they, you know, get these. Look at them. They're babies. Just incredible. But Atkins has done it again. Atkins is out there again and has another friend out there, this time a fellow alleged murderer. 
And that kid's name is Willie Jackson. And officials say they are both considered armed and dangerous. Again, 17 armed and dangerous. They look adorable, if you didn't know the history. Crime Stoppers is actually offering a big reward, a couple thousand bucks, 2,000, uh, for information leading to their capture. So if you know something, say something. Christmas is coming. Um, as for the lockup that the pair left behind, it's not the first time this one's been in the headlines. Let's have a look-see, shall we? In February of last year, eight inmates escaped from their cells and then got into a fight that led to three of them being hurt and the building itself was damaged. The heck is going on there? The year before, five inmates overpowered a staffer. They locked her in a cell without a radio and they stole her keys. Joining me now is Kieran Chawla, investigative reporter in Baton Rouge and host of Unfiltered with Kieran, the news site. Kieran, it's just kind of weird to think that, A, two 17-year-olds are charged with first-degree murder and are being held at a juvenile facility to start with. That just feels strange. Those are such strong and serious charges. You would think they would be held in a more secure facility, but okay. Is it a staffing problem? Is it a, um, is it a facility problem? What is going on at that juvie facility? I would say it's a little bit of everything when it comes to a problem, a funding problem. If there's not money, you have a staffing problem. You have issues with outdated facilities. You have issues with outdated security, infrastructure, judges, whatnot. So it's several different dominoes playing into effect in this specific case, but like you kind of already pointed out, it's not just one case. This is happening far too often in Baton Rouge, and it's not just one time, two times, three times, or even one person. Multiple times it's happened to where, like in this case, it's been two people both times, November 14th and on November the 25th. Mm -hmm. We've had in the past where five people have escaped, four people have escaped, three people. Um, I remember covering it one time where three of them got metal holes and then destroyed the property at the detention center as well and hurt two of the guards. There was another case, I think, where they overpowered guards and then they stole a guard's truck and left in his truck. So it, it's several different okay. reasons. It's crazy. So uh, the, when we do this show and we have done several shows in the last um, month and a half or so on manhunts, because there have been some very serious manhunts on going across this country for very dangerous people. And many of them are escapees. They're men, usually in their 20s, 30s and 40s and 50s. Do the authorities take these two as seriously? Because when I hear first degree murder charges, I don't care how old you are. You are scary and dangerous and desperate and you'll do anything to stay out on the lam. Is there is there a, a phalanx of, of canines out there and choppers and heat seeking? Like, what are they doing to find these kids? Well, and again, remember, like you said, this happened on November the 14th. Well, in 24 hours, they had them. This time, we're, we've crossed now 48 hours. They're not captured. Have I personally sat, sat here and seen drones up, canines up, and whatnot? No. It, are they all up? Could be. But usually, our viewership is pretty strong, and they'll let us know or ask, hey, there's helicopters up. Do you know what's going on? We haven't received any of those kind of messages. It's like you just said a little while ago that the police are most likely looking for them. Do we know that? No, they're not going to sit here and detail every tiny bit to us. And yes, but going back to your question as far as being 17, 
In fact, just leading up to this, we were talking to a neighboring parish's district attorney, and it's like he just said that, so in in East Baton Rouge Parish, not just East Baton Rouge Parish, should I say, in all of Louisiana, 17-year-old is considered a juvenile. It is why they are housed in the juvenile detention center. Now, you have to remember, you have 13, 14-year-olds also in that juvenile detention center. Well, 17-year-old is a lot stronger than a 13-year-old. You get two, three, four of them to gang up, and now it's like they were just saying they're sitting here throwing feces, making plans to get out of there. All it takes is a few of the 17-year-olds who are strong enough to overpower some of the guards. And like I said, we've seen the examples. Let me ask you about this. David Atkins, um, he, he was the kid on, on the left. I mean, they look at me, look, one year in between photos between kids that age, and it, 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 could, it could be two different kids, right? When your kid grows one year. David Atkins is the one on the left there, and he's the one that escaped before, so he's the second-time escapee. Yes. It, it looks as though the district attorney filed a motion to have him transferred to adult court, and I think that is after the first escape. So in between escape number one for this kid and escape number two, the DA was trying to do something about it. Um, I don't know about Willie Jackson, the other kid, but why didn't that work? Like, what was the problem? Is there there some issue in Louisiana with raising 17-year-olds to adult court? So let me explain that. We reported on that uh, earlier today, dug into all of that. So our district attorney, Hiller Moore here, filed two motions as soon as Green and Atkins from the November 14th case uh, escaped and were recaptured. He filed a motion to transfer. So he wanted them out of the Livingston, uh, the Livingston, out of the East Baton Rouge Parish Juvenile Detention Center, moved to, I call it the big boy prison, the parish prison. However, what he explained to me is that there are certain requirements that the parish prison has to meet when it comes to housing a juvenile. And they could not meet those requirements. The warden told the district attorney that we cannot meet those requirements at this time, so we cannot accommodate these juveniles. And that is why that motion is still pending. You would say, well, why hasn't a judge ruled on it? If a judge rules on it, it needs to happen. There is nowhere for these kids to go. And I say kids for a reason because technically they're 17. Now, having said that, though, the district attorney has charged them as adults, which is why you see their mugshots being released, which is why we're able to talk about it. So there's nowhere for them to go. And it's not just the East Baton Rouge Juvenile Detention Center. In the entire state, they have to find a spot for them to go, which that, that's a whole nother issue. Do you have like, do you have 10 seconds to tell me where the $2 million went for the um, security upgrades at this facility? Um, yeah, I wish I did, but I'll tell you this, we're following that trail. Oh, so you only needed five seconds. Okay. Well, Karen Charlie, <laughs> I, I guessed that you wouldn't need more than 10 and we were uh, spot on. So keep an eye on it. And Karen, just break in any time during the, um, during the show, if you hear of anything, because it tends to happen. It's a bit of a weird thing, but during our show at 10 o'clock at night, there tends to be a lot of captures. And so we end up doing these breaking news shows at 10 at night. I don't know why. Maybe they get dumb and tired by 10 and they make stupid mistakes. But I expect that 17-year-olds will make big, dumb mistakes. Karen, thank you. Appreciate it. You're Good welcome. to see you again. Thank you.
Kieran Shala reporting for us, and she will be back. Mark my words. Meantime, I want to bring in Mike King. He is a former homicide detective, 28 years in law enforcement, and he's the co-chair of the FBI's Violent Criminal Apprehension Program. He's also the author of Deceived, an investigative memoir of the Zion Society cult. All right, so here's my question to you, Mike. When you are hunting a 17-year-old or a pair of them, how is it different than if you're hunting a 28 or a 52-year-old? Because I think 17-year-olds are dumber, and yet I've met a lot of really dumb adult criminals. Yeah, and I've met a lot of pretty cagey 17-year-olds. So it really goes down to the looking at what their background is like. Are they manipulative in nature? Have they learned how to survive on the streets? Are these kids that have really uh, been in and out of the system? Are they spending a lot of time on their own? Uh, what, are, what are they doing in the community? Are they on the local football team and going to class every day? Or are they out kicking indoors at night and hanging around and, and getting involved in the drug trade? So we have to look at the sophistication level. We have to look at the environment. We have to look at the support system. And the support system might be created by these predators as they're out doing Things maybe stealing so they have something to eat or finding and breaking into an abandoned house so they have a place to stay? Or is somebody really supporting them and helping and harboring them and keeping uh, them under this watch of law enforcement? This is my point. So you're the guy helping to track. Are you calling Aunt Tanya or are you surveilling Aunt Tanya's house? Because eventually a 17-year-old uh, is going to need Aunt Tanya. Or is it, is it really a matter of it's exactly like the grown-ups? They do the same things. They find the same um, hot dogs and uh, dumpster diving food and they camp out in the backwoods. Is it the same pattern or are these kids just a little more desperate because they're young? Well, they might be a little more disorganized, Ashley. And, and I guess that's the real thing. They haven't learned through experience. But here's a kid who's busted out. He's been out on the lam and he learned some lessons. I guarantee he's learned some lessons and evolved as, re, as a result of that. Don't know about the other kid, what his background is. But somehow oil and gas come together in this juvenile facility and two serious offenders get connected with each other. And, and break out. And, and that makes a really dangerous situation. But it also increases the opportunity for law enforcement to really be able to find these guys because they probably are connected socially. They probably have found burner phones. They probably reached out to somebody they know, or at least over time they're going to. And that's not just one person, but two that are in the mix that hopefully are going to make yeah. some mistakes and law enforcement's going to get to them. I looked at that kid on the right with the white shirt, Willie Jackson, and the first thing that crossed my mind was, what a little cutie baby face, until I saw the neck tattoo. And I wondered, what kind of kid is already getting neck tattooed at this age? I mean, it just, you know, it just screamed a whole different story than the baby face I'm looking at. Again, I can't reiterate enough that these kids might look like they're not dangerous, but armed and dangerous police say they are first degree murder suspects. And my guess is that when they get yeah. them, they're going to cuff them in an extra belly chain. Um, Mike King, always good to have you. Thanks so much. Thanks, Ashley. Also want to let you know at home, keep your eyes peeled, okay? Because if you see these guys, David Atkins or Willie Jackson, call 911 or call Crime Stoppers. There's a take a picture of your TV screen, uh, 225-344-7000.
STOP, which is 225-344-7867. Again, there's a reward. Let's get these kids back where they belong, Pine Bars, maybe adult court and adult jail this time. Still to come, it is one thing to say that you were in a cannabis-induced psychosis when you stabbed your boyfriend 108 times, but it is another thing entirely to say it to a jury in a courtroom. Talk about stress. That's Bryn Speecher there in better times, obviously. Um, and she is about to do that make or break thing, the moment when your trial nears the point where you got to take the stand and explain yourself. After the break, I'll be joined by a reporter who is in the courtroom today and tell you everything that's been going on up until this very, very dangerous moment for her. This may sound like a hippie reference. But the reefer madness trial is a real thing, and it's happening right now in California. In fact, uh, the court was back in session today after the Thanksgiving break. But the young woman who's at the center of the case, Bryn Speecher, there she is right there, uh, she may have just had her last Thanksgiving meal with family, for a little while anyway. And this is without a question the biggest week of this lady's life. Because tomorrow she's expected to face the jury and then try to sell them a pretty tough story. That she was simply too high on dope to be responsible for stabbing her boyfriend more than 100 times back in 2018. Chad Omelia is that boyfriend who died. Um, she says the bong hits caused a psychotic break brought on by cannabis, other known as <laughs> marijuana and weed, the stuff that everybody thinks calms you down. Before Thanksgiving, there were several defense experts who said that the cannabis that she was smoking on the night where Chad O'Melia was killed uh, gave her, and I'll quote, delusions and hallucinations, and that she, quote, lost touch with reality. That's what they said. She lost touch with reality. Cannabis-induced psychosis is a medically documented thing, but it is still really hard to sell that kind of a thing to a jury. Recreational marijuana use it's known, right? It's legal in 24 states across this country. A lot of people have a hard time believing that something that chills most people out could actually cause someone to become, like, murderous. Like, to stab a boyfriend more than 100 times with two different knives and then turn on the dog and stab the dog and then turn on themselves and actually stab herself in the neck and the face repeatedly. These are the things that Bryn Speecher is accused of doing. And during the trial, Speecher has been out on a $510,000 bail, right? So Thanksgiving at home with the family. But now it's trial time. And then she's going to take the stand, we expect, tomorrow. And it's face the jury and try to convince them. And the clock is ticking. Cases expect to go to that jury before the end of this week. And if she is convicted of the charge that they've come way down to in voluntary manslaughter. Want to guess how long she could be up for in uh, prison? Take your time. Call a friend. That's it. Four years. Four years. 108 stabs. Four years. I want to bring in Tony Biasotti. He's an investigative reporter for the Ventura County Star. He's been following this case very closely, and he was in the courtroom today. I wish I was in that courtroom with you because this is one of those cases, Tony, where I just feel like I need to see everyone's face for it to make sense. So I'm going to I'm going to get you to be my eyes and ears and start with the jury. How are they absorbing all of this? If you could read their face as tea leaves. 
Yeah, um, the jury's actually been pretty poker-faced, you know. I've occasionally kind of looked over and see where, where, where do we think, you know, where, where are they going with this? How are they hearing this? And they really haven't given any signs, but on the very first day of this trial, uh, it, it started almost from the get-go with uh, some really graphic uh, body camera footage from the police when they first arrived at the scene. Um, you know, I don't know how much I want to get into it because it was one of the more disturbing things I've seen in uh, quite a long time of, of doing this job, but it, it definitely showed her uh, in a state of psychosis, um, stabbing herself in the neck. Uh, it was very graphic, very bloody. And at that, you could definitely see jurors kind of, uh, you know, eyes wide. Um, as far as what that means, I don't know, because, you know, it's a, one of the very odd things about this trial is that, as you said, it's a manslaughter trial. Uh, the charges were reduced from murder. That means basically that the prosecution agrees that she was in a state of cannabis-induced psychosis. That's not really something that's being argued at the trial. That's just kind of, you know, accepted. Uh, the, the legal issues at play, I guess, are whether she was responsible to the, to the degree to which she was responsible for putting herself in that state by voluntarily ingesting marijuana. Or, you know, her defense basically is that she had no way to know that that would happen from it. She was a very naive, inexperienced user that the guy she was dating kind of pressured her into taking this couple of bong hits. And that, you know, because of that, she couldn't really be expected to foresee that she would be driven to psychosis by this. That's the other thing. Tony, this is the other thing. Um, we're of a certain age. I think I can speak freely with you about what marijuana used to be like when we were kids. And it wasn't like this stuff. And so that's an issue in this courtroom that, you know, they, they talked about um, cannabis that was 4% THC that was found in the apartment. That is extremely low compared to cannabis today, which is known to be somewhere closer to around 20%. But then we heard testimony that her boyfriend who was stabbed to death, Chad Amelia, had in the past purchased cannabis that was 31%. Now, that would be on the extraordinarily high level. So did, does it seem as though that's the argument that the defense is going for? She may have had cannabis that was more like crack in that bong. I mean, it's just that she had only smoked a few times, had told people that it never really made her high. And I think he was kind of like, well, try this. You know, what, what her, her story to the police was, he said, I'll give you something more intense. Um, there's no suggestion that it was anything other than marijuana, no other drugs in anyone's system, but just that it might have been stronger. The idea that, you know, that, that where the 4% came from was uh, in the bong itself, they couldn't get anything they could test. It was, it was burned. They could identify that it was THC, but not how strong it was. They found some marijuana in the house, uh, upstairs in his bedroom or something that was originally tested at 4%. We heard some testimony today by an expert I, I just don't know how reliable that is. It seems like maybe uh, with today's testing and that, you know, maybe the sample wasn't tested right away, that 4% is highly questionable, especially given the effects. You know, they there are records of the victim uh, buying his weed from a delivery service where he ordered something that was supposed to be 31%. So, you know, unless he found a, a drug dealer who was time traveling from 1968 or something to bring him, um, you know, ditch weed that with 4% THC, I just, it doesn't seem very likely. And there are, there has been some expert testimony that 31% might be it, which is kind of more typical of, you know, modern day strong marijuana, which is what the victim's Chad Amelia was used to smoke. He had the same thing. Very strong. You know, it didn't and really affect him negatively. 
and, and I should also say that that's the THC. Nobody knows if this might have been laced with fentanyl or something else. And maybe Chad might have not known either. There's so many variables. Yeah, but would you come back and... They wouldn't have found any other drugs. I know. They, they that drives me crazy that they didn't, they didn't test for all the different kinds of things that, that we don't even know at this point. But um, I, well, they but would you come back and, and be the eyes and ears again for us on this? Because Absolutely. it's really good to know what it's like when she's going to be on the stand and what, how the jury absorbs that. And I look forward to, to hearing your report on it. Yeah, we should hear from her either tomorrow or the next day. I think tomorrow. Can't wait. Tony Biazotti, great job. Thank you for this tonight. Really appreciate it. Thank you. And then also, I want uh, you to know at home that tomorrow I'm going to be joined by Sean Omelia. That's the father of the victim, Chad Omelia. And he's going to give us his exclusive reaction to Bryn's testimony when she takes the stand. So make sure you tune in tomorrow night to hear that. And still to come tonight, a woman dies by suicide, but the police say her daughter is responsible. Hold on. Are you a murderer if you urge someone to take their own life and then you give them the means to do it? Before you answer that question, you should hear the details of this family tragedy and wait until you see the message in the mugshot. It's just below the banner in the T-shirt. Sometimes a picture is worth a thousand words and you'll see the zoom out just a moment. We have come a long way since the days of Dr. Jack Kevorkian. And remember the label he got for helping terminally ill people die if they wanted to? Dr. Death, he was called. Vilified, excoriated. Dr. Death. But, you know, assisted suicide's legal in a lot of places now. But there is this case in Oklahoma tonight that may get you rethinking how you feel about assisted suicide, no matter how you weigh in on this. There's a young woman by the name of J.D. Watts. There she is right there. And she is looking at felony murder right now. The victim is her own mom. Uh, This is the uh, unfortunate T-shirt choice that she picked the day she got her mugshot. It says dogs because people suck. She turned herself into the police in Oklahoma City. Those police say that she is responsible for her mother's suicide. Yes, I just said her mother took her own life. It has been called a suicide. And still police say that lady right there, J.D., is responsible. And this is going to take some explaining. Uh, J.D. was the primary caregiver of her mom, Linda. This is them in better times. That just breaks my heart with the holidays approaching to see that picture. Uh, Linda was 72 years old, and Linda was suffering from advanced dementia, and that is hell for Linda and for J.D. Uh, Police say that J.D. put a loaded pistol into her mother's hands and then encouraged her to use it on herself. And then she left her alone, and Linda did, in fact, use it on herself. She killed herself with that gun. Officials have since learned a lot about the relationship between mom and daughter, strained by the parent-caregiver situation. J.D. Watts is um, not in jail right now. She posted a million dollars bond. I want to bring in Dave Ehrenberg. He is a veteran prosecutor, currently state attorney for Florida's 15th Judicial District, and he's my go-to. I'm struggling with this one because felony murder requires an underlying felony, and I'm sure everything, you know, matches up or the prosecutors wouldn't have gone ahead. But I'm trying to figure out why prosecutors thought they might be able to actually take this into a courtroom and get a jury to agree. 
given that a lot of people are sympathetic to assisted suicide and might actually see it that way. What do you think? Actually, that would be the best defense because there were only two people there and one of them is dead. And so the defendant could say, yeah, she wanted to die. She begged me. But there's the ring doorbell. And that recorded her, the defendant's comments, berating her mother and pretty much encouraging her to shoot herself and then handing a person with dementia a loaded gun. So that could fall under the murder statute. It doesn't have to be felony murder. It could be second degree murder, which in Oklahoma says that it's perpetrated by an act imminently dangerous to another person and evincing a depraved mind regardless of human life. So I think they could get her on murder charges and that ring doorbell video audio recording is damning. If, if I'm her lawyer, I'm thinking, okay, you're right. So the ring doorbell cam, I'll just tell that the, the audience, um, she was berating her mother. Uh, she was verbally abusive um, to her mother. She was swearing at her and saying things like, I hope you choke on your pills. Those are my words, but it was to that extent. Um, and then she took the gun and gave it to her mother and said, do with it what you effing will. Um, but we're not seeing maybe some of the other ring doorbell camera that might have been really difficult on JD. Like, who knows what it was like for JD? Because many people will say they care for people with dementia, and it can be that the abuse is, you know, is, is a two-way street, right? So do you think it's possible, Dave, that this jury might nullify because they can see that this is a real struggle um, and that this mom did shoot herself? Yes, uh, this is a tough case for prosecutors because of the threat of jury nullification, where regardless of the jury instructions, regardless of the laws I just stated to you, all it takes is one juror to say, you know what, I don't think we should send this person to prison for the rest of her life when she was clearly um, an affectionate, loving daughter who took care of her mother but just had enough. And I think, though, that the ring doorbell video uh, audio is really bad, but also it's her statement to police afterwards, where she admitted a motive. She said something to the effect of being a caretaker is really hard. So that, to me, tells me as a prosecutor that she wanted a way out. And you do not have the right to take someone's life because it sucks being a 24-7 caregiver. Yeah, that's it. That's the quote right there that she, she told the police she turned herself in. She didn't deny it. And she said those words. And so that, that might come back to haunt her, or it may not. Like you said, juries have a funny way of saying, but for the grace of God, you know, go why. But Dave, will you come back again? You know, I love you. Love you back, Ashley. Happy holidays. Right back at you, Dave Ehrenberg, uh, joining us live tonight. All right, so the true crime genre, I don't need to tell you this, right? It is more popular than it's ever been before, be it Netflix or a mystery podcast, or your nightly visits with me. Thank you so much. Uh, but there is this one fan who has taken her true crime obsession to a whole other level. And let's just say the way she binged could land her in prison for life. I will explain why and what they say she did. It's the Xfinity Mobile Black Friday sale. Learn how to get a free line of mobile for two years with Xfinity Fast Internet and up to $800 off an eligible 5G phone. Visit Xfinity.com slash Black Friday today. Ends 12.5 restrictions apply. Actual internet speeds vary. Xfinity Mobile requires Xfinity Internet. 
Pass it on. Here's a short quiz. Who won Best Actress last year? Who won the World Series two years ago? And finally, name your favorite teacher. Pass it on. Now, I'm guessing that the last question was the easiest. Why is that? Because that person made a difference in your life. So, go ahead and make a difference. Because making a difference is in you. Pass it on. From passiton.com. You can always come up with an excuse for not visiting longtermcare.gov. Oh, I forgot. Game night. After all, who wants to admit that one day they will be, you know, old? Hey, do you see any crow's feet on this face? I don't. But since 70% of older Americans need some kind of long-term care, why not do some free planning now so you can stay in charge? Visit longtermcare.gov and find your own path forward. When I grow up, I want to be a ballerina. Because dancing makes me happy. I get to entertain people, and nothing makes me feel more like me. PI, a defect of the immune system, affects millions of children. Early and accurate diagnosis and treatment give children like Olivia a chance to achieve their dreams. It takes a great team to put on a show. It also takes a great team of caring people to keep a dream alive. And now my dreams are coming true. For more information, visit the Jeffrey Modell Foundation at infoforpi.org. I met him when he was in his 30s. 15 years old with multiple disabilities. It was a traumatic brain injury. Several surgeries led to his swallowing disorder. His goal was to get back to work. Social interaction was the key to helping him. Oh, he was dedicated. When he ate, his friends cheered. And he made it back to work. Everyone has the right to communicate. Find an ASHA-certified speech-language pathologist today at asha.org public. Thanks for listening to News Nation on the go. I'm Ashley Banfield, and this is America's source for engaging and unbiased news. High Five Casino. Social casino fun with real prizes and big Vegas hits. Have you had your High Five moment today? Hey there, I'm Bob. Before High Five Casino, my high fives were more like low threes. But after my High Five moment, boom! High fives all around. That's the spirit. High Five Casino is turning every moment into a High Five moment. Visit h5c.fun. That's h the number 5c.fun and start spinning and winning today. High Five Casino. High Five Casino is a social casino only. No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited. Play responsible. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Son of a Critch has moved to Thursday. What is happening? It's the hit series from the producer of Shit's Creek and Change. Smells like puberty to me. Is in the air. Thursdays on the CW. Great eight. I'm still. A whole new school year has begun. I can skateboard now. Wanna try? Oh, no, thank you. But Mark Critch. I don't skate or ride a bike. I'm not into transactions. Is not coming in hot. New Year, same door. Son of a Critch. All new Thursdays at 8, 7 central on the CW. Farming is dangerous. There's dangers all around us. We go through safety training and try and do these things to make sure accidents don't happen. You don't want to hit a gas pipe because that's your life. The other part of it is if you hit certain things, you're liable for it. FarmSafe 811 starts with you. Always call 811 and wait for any underground lines to be marked. Always keep safety in the back of your mind. Just stay humble. For more information, go to FarmSafe811.org. The possibility of lung cancer can be pretty scary, especially if you're one of approximately 8 million current or former smokers at high risk. That's why SaveByTheScan.org wants you to know that now there's a breakthrough low-dose CT scan that can detect lung cancer early, and it only takes 60 seconds. You stop smoking. Now start screening. 
For an easy quiz to see if you're eligible, visit SaveByTheScan.org. It could save your life. SaveByTheScan.org is brought to you by the American Lung Association's Lung Force Initiative and the Ad Council. So I think we're alike. We're crime buffs, right? But being a crime buff is very different from, say, being like a needlepoint buff or a beekeeping buff or like maybe a heavy metal buff. You can read about crimes, you can watch TV shows and movies, you can listen to podcasts about crime, you can even blog about crimes. But you cannot actually participate in crime. Not without getting way more immersed than you should be in your hobby. But that did not seem to stop uh, Jung Yoo Jung in South Korea. Jung is a true crime-obsessed junkie. She is in so deep that she decided to live out her hobby IRL in real life. The local police in Busan, in South Korea, say that she stabbed an English teacher more than a hundred times. By the way, many of the stab wounds apparently were like well after the teacher was already dead, so ew. They say that the 23-year-old killer became fixated with the idea of, quote, trying out a murder out of curiosity, end quote. Over the course of a few months, police say that uh, this is what she did. She contacted more than 50 different people, most of them women, and she was posing as the mom of a high schooler, asking if uh, that person taught English lessons from home. How convenient. And when she found her victim, the police say she showed up at that victim's house dressed as a schoolgirl and then unleashed her holy hell. She then dismembered the victim, put her in a suitcase, and took her in a taxi to a park near a river and dumped the remains. Wouldn't you know it, it was the taxi driver who tipped off the police. I am joined now by Gigi McKelvey. She's the host of the popular Pretty Lies and Alibis podcast. And this is the stuff that Gigi lives, eats, and breathes. First of all, here's what I couldn't believe. And maybe our audience isn't familiar with this. But they wanted the death penalty for this woman. And in South Korea, that is saying a lot. It is super rare for anybody to go after the death penalty in South Korea. Very rare. In fact, they haven't put anybody to death since 1997. So, I mean, maybe they're going to make a big statement here with her. Who knows? And say, if you if you get obsessed with true crime, don't go killing people because we're going to kill you. Yeah. And I say that here and often and early on this show. If you're obsessed with our show material, please do go out and try this at home. Um, so here's the question. Did she actually blame true crime um, movies and docs and podcasts and the like uh, for what happened? Yeah, only after a mental illness argument didn't fly with the courts. So then she starts blaming true crime shows, binging shows and novels and all this stuff. But yeah, so she actually tried to blame true crime shows. I mean, look, you can binge 14 episodes of whatever crime show you want on Netflix, but we're in trouble if people start doing that (laughs) and, and do what she did. Amen. God, I hope she didn't watch our stuff, Gigi. Um, oh, so man. That's a, how about ew. just the... <laughs> gives you the willies, yeah. How about her MO? Like, what, was, she, was she good at this? Was she clever? Did she learn any lessons from the true crime genre and how to pull off the, the perfect murder? She learned nothing. She did everything wrong. She did not look to see where cameras <laughs> were. She gets in a taxi with a dismembered body. Clearly, this girl is not up on the true crime like she says she is. I think it was a good excuse that she thought might fly. But those of us that know this stuff, I say she's maybe watched one way back when and didn't pay attention. 
It's so gross to see the the suitcase, but it also looks like a very small suitcase. So I'm surprised that the the, the, the dismembered remains are, are in there. But ha- quick question: it, This is usually what trips up the dum dums. It's their browsing history. They usually do something very stupid um, on their on their laptops. Was she one of these? She was one. She looked up how to kill, how to get rid of a body, and you mentioned you know she looked up 50 different tutors on this app who work from home, mostly women. So, of course, it would be more of an even playing field if she did go in there intending to kill. It would be a little harder with somebody who's bigger. But, yeah, her browsing history pointed right back, just like all the CCTV footage and everything. She really made it easy for investigators. Jung Yu Jung, that is her name, and I don't think things are going to look good for her, not with the security cameras and the browsing history. Does, do they not learn anything from the work no, but, that we do, Gigi McKelvey? No, I'm going I'm to tell you, Ashley, you know, that's a scary thought. I'm about ready to go build a bunker in the boondocks and just hang out down there because this world's gone crazy. Amen, Sister Costa Rica. I'll meet you there. But I have to wait till right. my foot heals because I got a broken <laughs> wheel. So, uh, Gigi McKelvey, give you love a thank back. you. Come on. All right. Thank you, Ashley. Hi, girl. Hi, girl. She's the host of Pretty Lies and Alibis, the podcast. Get it. Download it. It's great. Coming up. If you ever find yourself in the pokey, uh, you better get a good lawyer because lawyers are supposed to help you when you're in a tight spot. But a Texas lawyer took helping his clients in prison to a whole new level. Wait until you hear what he brought in for those clients locked up, allegedly. Uh, But here's a hint. He now needs a lawyer of his own, and he needs a damn good one. Full details next. Where there are jails and criminals and alleged criminals, there are also lawyers. And in many jails, like it or not, illegal drugs are rampant. And I have always wondered how they keep getting the drugs in there. Right? It's a total cat and mouse game, and yet drugs keep getting in. And that is why this story from Texas hits a little different. At the largest county jail in Texas, that lawyer there, named Ronald Lewis, has been accused of sneaking ecstasy and synthetic marijuana to the inmates inside. Any guesses how? I'll give you a minute. No? Four words. Drug. Soaked. Legal papers. Kind of ingenious. Uh, Police say that he had been smuggling them into the jail for months, just carrying his legal papers in, soaking them all in the dope. Uh, He's 77 years old, and he's been a lawyer for a while, right? 40 years. But now he himself is charged with two counts of bringing a controlled substance into a correctional facility. That is a serious charge. Uh, He's out on bond right now, and guess what? He himself needs a lawyer, so it turns out it is true. Where there's a will, there's a way. I've been dying to use that line. Do you get it? Like a will, a piece of paper, right? Where there's a will, there's a way. All right, so tomorrow, speaking of jails, uh, jails that aren't very good at keeping the people inside, there are these two teenagers that we've been tracking. We've been tracking them tonight. They're still out there tonight. They're going to spend another night on the lam. There they are right there. The one on the left is David Atkins. The one on the right is Willie Jackson. They're both 17 from Louisiana, and they're both charged with first-degree murder. Somehow they were able to 